why is the world the way it is? Who has power? Who doesn't have power? And why? So that's a way of looking at the world that's automatically there for me. That examination is something that feels necessary. This is my African Reading List, a podcast from the House of Literature, where invited guests present their recommendations and must-reads from the African continent and diaspora. This reading list comes from author Nadifa Mohammed. She sat down with Åsil Loppegård-Lan to talk about writing and reading. I'm Nadifa Mohammed and I'm a novelist. I've published three novels and they're all historical in a loose sense. They range from the 1930s to the 1980s. I'm particularly interested in stories of very obscure individuals, the kind of people that really don't make it into history books, mm. but who have had really incredible lives, meaningful lives outside of that gaze, that public gaze. So my first novel was about my father and his experiences in the 1930s and 40s. Then um, The Orchard of Lost Souls was set in Somalia, the Somali Republic as it was, the dictatorship in the 1980s and the outbreak of civil war in 1988. And then the third, The Fortune Men in English, um, is set in 1950s Cardiff and is about a real miscarriage of justice against a man called Mahmoud Matan. And so you um, turn to history or the recent history, either the 30s, 40s, 50s or the 80s, 90s mm. in in your um, books. Why do you end up writing fiction when you're looking mm. into history? Why do you think yeah. is fiction's role in, in telling those stories? So I don't feel like I had much of a choice. So the first novel was meant to be a biography of my father, a very short, scrappy, factual biography of him to mark for my family's history. And it just grew and grew and grew, and the more it grew. And I was trying to stay very exact to his real experiences. I wasn't intending to add anything. But what was missing for me was a sense of the the mind and his emotions. What was going on there that led his this really crazy journey across 10 different countries. Um, and so that's where the fiction started to creep in. It wasn't in terms of making things up that he did. It was more trying to get under the skin of this person um, who is experiencing all of these extreme things and doing these unusual things. Not so much even unusual, because it was not unusual for the time. It was all about survival. But for me, unusual. Yeah, and and you definitely do that also in, in the women characters that you yes. give voice to in, in The Orchard of Lost Souls and in, in the character of Mahmoud Matan in, yeah. in so, The Fortune Man. Yeah, I guess The Orchard of Lost Souls could have been a non-fiction account of the lives of Somali women. And I do find oral history really interesting and oral testimony. That's also been a part of the way I work all the way through. I do interviews with people for the novels. But um, it's some, there's something satisfying about the creative process of fiction. It's, it's a meditative one. It's a spiritual, spiritual one, I think. I'm realizing that more and more as I get older. It's a way of communing with yourself. Mm unpicking elements of your own life that you want to unpick, but also taking yourself out of your own head because we can be so focused on our own stories. Yeah. And there's something very freeing about being in a body or trying to be in a body that's not your own. 
So that, I think, is one of the chief reasons of writing it as fiction, is that um, if I was to write these stories as biographies um, or histories, then I would be almost, I feel like I'd be trying to be the authority on it. Hmm. So almost take ownership and, and make sense of these stories. And it's, that's not really what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to, I'm trying to live it and think about it and think about what it makes me feel. Which doesn't come with authority, but it comes with something else. What do you most like to read? I'm reading a lot at the moment, and somehow every book seems to be really impressive. So I'm reading, I've just finished Severance by Ling Ma, and before that, The Netanyahu's by Joshua Cohen, and then before that, Percival Everett's Telephone. And they've all made me laugh and have been really impressive. Do you have a favorite genre? Mm, no. Um, Fiction, literary fiction is probably what I read most of the time. Quite a bit of nonfiction as well. I like science, I like medicine, but I like novels in particular that take that make me learn something I didn't know before. Whether that's, you know, what does it what does it feel like to be um a medieval scholar or to work um in product shipment bureaucracy <laughs> between America and um, China, which is one of the themes of severance. So books that take me somewhere else completely from my life. And do you do you read them for research or for pleasure or for both? A variety of reasons. Um, and one, you know, there are periods of time where I don't really get to read at all and that muscle starts to get quite slack. So I'm enjoying this um lengthened period of reading and it's because maybe I'm getting back into that writing mode and the two things are connected once when I start writing in earnest I probably stop reading again but mm -hmm. in this moment where I feel like writing but I don't have the opportunity to reading maybe does that work for me and you call it a muscle the reading I muscle is. Yeah. I think so I think it is because it's something that the more you exercise it, the stronger it gets and your capacity for reading gets bigger and stronger. <laughs> so what do you do if you're out of practice, if that muscle is then slack? It's, then it's your, you know, you do your little five minutes <laughs> here and there. You make sure, you you know, sometimes, especially because there are so many things to grab our attention, if you can get through five, ten minutes without looking at the phone, without trying to listen to a podcast at the same time, without watching something on the TV at the same time, it will slowly improve. And for writers, I... I'm guessing many writers, the ability to focus, which you kind of lose in between books, is something you have to work work on again before you get into another novel. You said that you like to read historical fiction, and that's also, I think, the case for your own fiction. Mm. Um, because in your own writing, all your novels, to some extent, deal with with the recent history in in some way in in your own father's uh, life story in Black Mama Boy and the Somali Civil War in the Orchard of Lost Souls and now in your latest novel it's uh, the true story of Mahmoud Matan. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, so why do you think that is? I've always been a history nerd. I studied history and politics at university. 
my father was very interested in history and politics himself, and it was a big theme of conversation growing up in the house. Why is the world the way it is? Who has power? Who doesn't have power? Power and why? So that's you know a, a way of looking at the world that's automatically there for me. That examination is something that feels necessary. But with novels, for me at least, I don't think it's um, a very thought-out process. I don't think to myself, you should write a historical novel and you should write a historical novel about this period in this place. It, it more likely comes from a particular story or a particular individual encapsulating a history that makes me curious. Um, and there, there do seem to be these two particular moments in time that grab my attention. It's the 40s, 50s, and then the 80s and 90s. So one is when my dad is young and one, one is when I'm young. Hmm. Um, and the novel I'm trying to get into right now to start working on is set in the 80s, 90s, 2000s and, and up to now. So that would be the most contemporary I've got um, and that feels very weird. And maybe that's also some of my nervousness about getting fully into it is this new challenge of writing a novel that's not really his semi-historical. It's got the, the past in it, but it's also trying to think about the now. And the mm. now is not not easy to think about. No. No. <laughs> How come? It's, it's too volatile, um, especially in the UK, so much has changed over the last 10 years. Um, we're still processing the pandemic. You know, the Queen's death recently is another big momentous mo uh, event in, in Britain's history, whether you're a supporter of the royal family or not. It does seem symbolic in some way. Um, the lives of immigrants within that world, of Somali immigrants particularly, is in flux. Um, and I think with the past, you can really coolly think about it. Um, the tempers have generally faded, passions have faded a bit. Um, and you can you can unpick it in a way that maybe you can't really unpick the present because you're, you're caught up in it as well. Yeah. So how do you do that in your... I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what makes novels interesting is that each novel, you don't know what on earth you're doing. You don't know what it's about, how you're going to write it, um, what it will end up being. So I'm definitely in that moment of really not knowing much about this novel. But having the vague skeleton of it in my mind. And that's the exciting bit, I guess. Mm -hmm. Before you start writing. Yes, Seriously. before you're deep into the writing and... You know, I think I've got a few pages down um, and they always look so shabby. These big ideas that didn't have to be pinned down in your brain. When you start writing them, they look very thin and small. Um, but you just keep plodding along until it starts feeling fuller. Well, I guess we just have to wait for the result then. Mm -hmm. Yes. Since this podcast is called My African Reading List, <laughs> we uh, want to ask you uh, what writers you want to talk about. Do you have any anyone in mind that you'd like to recommend? 
So I always recommend him, but I feel like he's he is the main man for me. And it's Amadou Karuma, who sadly passed away a few years back. And he was from the Ivory Coast and he wrote in French. And his novels are Waiting for the Wild Beasts to Vote, Allah is Not Obliged, and a few others as well. Tell me about what attracted you to him or when you when you first discovered him. So I think I probably picked up Allah is Not Obliged, partly because of the title. It's rare to see Allah in the name of a novel. And also because I was researching Black Mamba Boy and I was looking for all kind of accounts of child soldiers. And my father was a child soldier in the Second World War. Mm. So there was a lot of these books, um, both fiction and nonfiction, by young African men who'd fought in Liberia, Sierra Leone, DRC, Uganda... Um, is there any by Somalis? There weren't any by Somalis, to my knowledge. Um, South Sudan as well. Mm. Emmanuel Jal was one. So I was reading wide, widely and with you know, very varying um, kind of literary books. And this was a novel, um, which was unusual. And it was so convincing and so raucous and... Uh, Disrespectful, I guess, is a word. Is it's it's not trying to make anyone saintly or tragic. Even the tragedy is in the fast the farcical nature of what happens to this little boy. Um, and I I was convinced it was by this young, quite anarchic writer, and instead it's this very successful 80-something-year-old <laughs> francophone um, man, Amadou Karuma. So that was the first startling thing about him, um, that he'd captured this young voice so well. And then the second novel I read by him was uh, um, Waiting for the Wild Beasts to Vote, and that's completely different, but also anarchic, and that's about the rise of rise to power of an African dictator, an imagine, imaginary one, but very closely based on quite a few real mm. people. And it's told through the medium of a griot who's singing the praises oh, to, wow. to the, of and to this dictator. And for those who don't know what a griot is, would you? So it's a traditional West African, um, particularly Mali, Ivory Coast, um, praise singer, poet, historian, um, detractor. You can pay them to detract from other people as well. So... They were they were employed by families, especially important families, to record their history, celebrate their successes, attack their attackers, and put it all into uh, a kind of poetry. Hmm. And they're still around; it's, it hasn't died out. And I think it's probably been um, form formula a formulative influence on all sorts of different things: calypso, rap. Um, blues very fitting that we have the Norwegian Rio Ibu Sisuku who makes the music for this podcast right hello mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> hello Ibu um so what um how would you say well you said you discovered him um doing research for Black Mama Boy but mm. do you think his writing has affected yours for sure for sure because I think you know by that I can't remember what stage I read him But I was in the flow of Black Mamba Boy, and it was a crazy book to write, trying to write about this young man's 
journey through 10 different countries at this really tumultuous time in the 30s and 40s, trying to jump from different cultures and languages and historical moments, different co colonies, was hard. Um, so just trying to juggle all of those things and then wondering, well, what is the point of this novel? Where does it end? You know, this boy is just traveling, 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 but it has to end at some point. And what is my relationship to his journey? So that prologue, which came quite late, um, which kind of outlines the fact of who I am. I'm my father's daughter, and this is a novel about him, for him. It's a hymn to him. It's to sing his praises. It's not about this object, objective appraisal of mm. East African colonial um, history. It's, it's his story, and one told by someone who doesn't care to be objective. And that definitely was influenced by that griot tradition. For your latest novel, The Fortune Man, did you have uh, anything you anything or anyone that you read that you think somehow influenced that book, or is that more of a um, going into the archives and? It was very archival, very research based. Black Mamba Boy was as well, but with my father being there as the primary source, um, he was the most important archive. But here, you don't have the protagonist, you don't have the person who this all happened to. So you had to find him in the archive, in interviews in Cardiff, in London, in Somaliland. Um, but I think I was quite wary. I knew that In Cold Blood by Truman Capote could influence it, so I didn't read it. I'd mm -hmm. watched the films. There was two films that came out roughly the same time, which gave me the vague outline of what the story was. But I didn't want to read the novel in case it influenced me. Um, what did I read around then? I read a lot of nonfiction about Tiger Bay and poetry. So one of the um, quotes at the beginning of the novel is by Harry Shipmate Cook, who was a sailor who uh, moved to Tiger Bay, stayed in Tiger Bay. And his poetry of that time in the 30s in particular was really striking. It was humorous. It was, you know, immersed in that culture, that seagoing mm. culture of... Um, he's an English guy, but open to the rest of the world. His memories are of the rest of the world. Um, the seas off Java, for instance. You know, these places that other sailors would know exactly what he means, but I wouldn't. I've not, I've not been to Java. Mm. <laughs> um, so trying to immerse myself in that kind of masculinity was the most important thing. And I, I did that through a lot of nonfiction, um, sociological reports. There was a book published in 1947 in the UK by the Mass Observation Survey, which still exists. It's a governmental body that examines the sociological aspects of people's lives. And they did a look at the colored, in inverted uh, commas, world in Tiger Bay, um, which is really fascinating. And it really goes into detail about people's quality of life, um, how much money they earned, mm. what they spent it on, diseases, um, racism and their own perceptions of racism at that time in the 40s. So that really helped. Do you have any uh, other writers that you'd like to highlight from the African continent or diaspora? Mm -hmm. So if we're including the diaspora as well, then I would want to say someone who is almost coming up to the anniversary of his first novel coming out, 100 year centenary anniversary, and that's Claude McKay. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and his first novel came out in 1928, I think, Home to Harlem. And he was a poet. He was a sailor. He worked in the engine rooms like Mahmoud and my father. He was um, a waiter on board the railways in the U.S., crisscrossing the U.S. He was born in Jamaica, in rural um, Jamaica, I think Clarendon Parish, where his father was well-to-do-ish uh, or respectable, a respectable farmer. Um, and that was his world to inherit, I guess. And he had a good education, but quickly became the kind of bohemian traveling artist of any parent's nightmares. <laughs> and he left for, New for America and then was everywhere. He was in Russia in, in the 1920s and met Trotsky there. And Trotsky was the one who gave him the inspiration to write Home to Harlem. Oh, wow. Which was meant to be, you know, a communist-leaning sociological report on the conditions of African-Americans and basically how do we ra radicalize them into being communists. And instead, he wrote this wild, um, modernist and... Uh, in a way, it's, I don't want to say apolitical because it was very political, but it wasn't. It wasn't an easily identifiable politics. It seemed to annoy everyone. So I don't think Trotsky got what he wanted out of the novel. But then the the more sort of uh, conservative African American activists and thinkers of the time, such as W. E. B. Du Bois, hated the novel hmm. because it was about the bawdy working class irregular lives of black and uh, black men and women in places like Harlem where they were away from any kind of parental supervision did what they wanted changed the rules men dressed like women if they wanted to women kept men as their concubines in a way you know the the men were the peacocks and the women would go to work in these hard grim jobs and then decorate their men in finery and compete over them so it was an overturning of all of those sorts of traditional conservative American values. Hmm. But he wasn't writing about them to say, oh, these people need to be communists now. He was just celebrating them. And he was part of the Harlem Renaissance? He was, yeah, very but early. Maybe a little bit contested then? Yes. Among those? Yes, very much contested. And an outsider, because he wasn't actually American, he was Jamaican and he was a traveler. So he spent a lot of the 30s in in Tunisia, Morocco, uh, France, England. Um, he was all over the place. Um, and when he did finally return, he was kind of out of fashion. And how did you first encounter him and his writing? A lot of these books I first encountered a long time ago when I worked in a library. And we would have these book sales where obscure books were sold for 10p, 20p, 30p. And I would just peruse them um, while putting them on the book sale hmm. and take them if I felt... So with um, Banjo, that was the first book I think I read by Claude McKay and that caught my attention. Again, in that research mode, you kind of have this huge wide net. You don't care. Anything to do with your subject matter is interesting. So the fact that it was set in Marseille, a port city in the 1920s in this multicultural black world... All of those things made me think about Aden and Alexandria, which were places that I was writing about for Black Mamba Boy. So uh, which book do you think people should pick up now if they want to discover Claude McKay? Where should they start? Well, I know that Vintage publishers in the UK are about to re-release Home to Harlem. So that could be a good time to do that. Um, and they're also 
publishing books of his that were never published in his own lifetime. So Amiable with Big Teeth came out, and that's really interesting. That's set, for an East African reader, that's particularly interesting. It's set in the 1930s as the Italians are about to invade Ethiopia. And he's looking at it from the perspective of African-Americans, you know, political, uh, anti-colonialist, black activists who see what's going on. Um, And an Ethiopian man is sent as an envoy, they think, into Harlem to attract funds and support to fight off the Italians. Um, so that, again, that's, it's very rare, I think, for these worlds, the diaspora and you know, Africa itself and its politics, to be combined in a novel. But it's very segregated. Yeah. So American stories are very American, Caribbean stories are very Caribbean, African stories, whatever that means, you know, it's such a huge continent, are seen as particularly African. But Claude McKay blurred those boundaries in the 1930s. So that was a really interesting book to read. And then most recently as well, um, Romance in Marseille was published, published for the first time. That was just a manuscript um, when he died. And that's about a Senegalese sailor who has a horrible accident incident on a ship and loses his fingers, I think, through frostbite and takes the company to to court and wins compensation. (laughs) It's a strangely modern story as well. Thank you. You have listened to My African Reading List. The complete reading list can be found in the show notes. Interviewer in this episode is Åsil Lappegård-Lam. Editing and production by the House of Literature. Music by Ibu Sissoko.